This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole to find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Gary Cooper. Gary spent eight years building Samsung's innovation arm, Samsung X, before he was drawn into the Web3 world. Today, he is the Chief Operating Officer of Superlayer, a venture studio focused on building crypto startups. We start this conversation by analyzing what went wrong in the industry over the past two years and why Gary advocates burying the rails. We then talk about Superlayer's attempt to build an economically sustainable and inflation-resistant token model within their products, Hotline and Trophy. Please enjoy my conversation with Gary Cooper. Gary, in 2021, Web3 was the word. I don't know if it was the word of the year, but everybody was talking about it. Everyone had high ambitions of it could solve the world's problems for creators, for artists, for connecting people. And clearly, in hindsight, it was a bubble. And a lot of people, when a new technology starts to gain adoption, people get ahead of themselves. So I'm curious, from your time from starting Superlayer, going back on it, I'm sure you've done a lot of reflection. What were the things that you got most wrong as you tried to launch your new business? Great question, because it was only two and a half, two years ago that we got going. And it feels like we've gone 18 directions. The market's gone 18 directions since then. But let's bring out the bloopers real. So I think, I'd say first and foremost, I think you're right that crypto Web3 was supposed to cure world hunger, cure cancer, let alone revolutionize how businesses are built. And fundamentally, that was flawed. And I think what we've learned is that crypto is basically an additional stack on the product you already had to build. Let's say you wanted to build Twitter. You still have to build Twitter. It's just then you have to be token economy built underneath of it. It's the rails underneath it is an additional product you have to build. So it's not like there's a revolutionary new way of building a product. It's now you have to build two products. And I think what happened was people were so fixated on building the token product that they forgot that, oh yeah, with, if you're building Twitter, you actually have to have users and you have to have a business model and people have to be, want to be a part of it. Just showing off some sexy rails was not a secret to success. So I think that's one where there's definitely an over-rotation on crypto as a cure for cancer. Maybe another reflection is tokenized consumer products were really only built for gurus. In 2021, the market of people in Web3 was so small that the narrative was being driven by the purists. So you take the example of NBA Top Shots, which is probably one of my gateways into crypto. They did a ton of things right. They built a really compelling 
consumer product. It was easy to use whether you knew what the hell you were doing in crypto or not. You logged in, they created a wallet in the background for you. And then there was a ton of hype around. People understood trading cards, digital trading cards, not a stretch. Great consumer experience. And then they basically got shamed by everyone in crypto because it wasn't truly on chain. It was almost like the held up example of fake Web3 or fake crypto. So then we went through this whole rotation of, okay, well, great. Everything's got to be on chain. Everything's got to be perfect. And I think what we realized is that TopShot's got a ton right. And actually, the starting with, this has to be an amazing consumer experience first with the crypto rails far in the background. That was the right starting point. And so I think for us at Superlayer, that's where we're building our projects up to date. But certainly, I think some of our early projects were probably two crypto rails forward. And I think people under believe that mentioning the token was its own value prop. If you were to say, we we're going to build crypto Twitter, which was an early project we were building, just saying, yeah, there's going to be a token for this Twitter project. That was the key selling point. And so I think the idea of a token being somehow differentiated or something that would draw everyone in was just very much a moment in time during this ripping bull market. And the last one that we can probably dive into in much more depth, because it's the fundamental underpinning of what we're building with our companies and super layers is inflation-based token system. And this is the thing that probably gets the most critique, which I agree with, which is most of the consumer projects, take Axie or take Stefan, were high inflation, high growth. And if you're going to make a bet, that's that if inflation is high and constant and growth can start out outstripping that, and that's when we saw these massive run-ups, but eventually that growth merry-go-round slows down. But if that inflation is constant and that you're screwed, that's where we saw these unsustainable models. I think everyone knew somehow that it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. And it was just who can suspend disbelief longest. And ultimately it all came crashing down. And so I think learning from that is certainly a big driver of where we've taken our companies in Superlayer. That's great. Just to dive into that further, the sexy rails, I'm going to use that. <laughs> As someone who's built something, I would tell people that when you build a business or a product, you're building a skyscraper and everybody wants to be the interior decorator to the penthouse. That's like the most exciting job. And I told people that after building a business, to me, the people that I know that are other builders, they're like, I know where the sewer lines go. I know how to make the electrical lines go to the right spot with the most efficient wiring. I pour foundation. All the ugly rails is what makes beautiful skyscrapers. But the thing is, we don't tell people about them because that's not what sells the product. And the funny part that you are mentioning that really resonates with me is that we brought the rails forward. Nobody cares that I made the database go faster by doing this thing. It's just, but the app runs. Netflix does content. Behind that, there's a bunch of horribly hard infrastructure problems that nobody cares about. And when you're selling the rails, that clearly was something that goes ahead of me. I want to combine two first. The top shot inflation thing to get your take on this is that because people are so excited about crypto for whatever reason, it could be the money, it could be their passions, it could be their ideological views, it does get people pretty fired up about things. And when it goes wrong, like the top shot example, I totally hear you. It was consumer facing. But to me, that felt like an inflation problem. And then it got slapped because it didn't do well. Nobody wanted to say crypto is wrong. They wanted to say, well, you weren't crypto enough. So do you put that in the crypto category or do you put that in the inflation category? Well, I think your take on it is the right one, which is I think people saw the rise and fall and they said, oh, well, the fall was due to the fact that it wasn't crypto enough. I feel like we're in the space of crypto, which 
at whatever point you got in, you always felt too late. And I'm sure this is the same in social media. And so we're in 2023 and we are still incredibly, incredibly, incredibly early. But it's hard for anyone entering the space to feel like, oh yeah, I'm still so early. They feel like they're late. And I think what happened with Top Shots is the same piece where people wanted to believe that, oh, it's because it's not deep enough crypto. No, it's really just, it wasn't that well designed from an inflation standpoint. Even, I think we've seen a lot of that with some of the NFT stuff as well, where I was looking at Zed Run again the other day. For those not familiar, it's a horse racing NFT-based game, and you can breed those ponies. And turns out when you can breed ponies like rabbits, that may not be sustainable. And so there's new things going after similar spaces where it's, yeah, you probably need to limit supply a bit. Yeah, I'm excited to get into inflation. So on the sexy rails, you have this unique experience where you've done a lot of things. Now you have this venture studio and building these companies yourself. How do you push that to the back yet explain why this is different? Because I do think there's a lot of when you pitch your ideas, people are asking. I think one of the greatest questions is, does this have to be decentralized? Does this have to use a blockchain? So how do you answer those benefits of why it makes sense for the businesses you're building? Well, I think the question of bringing it to sexy rails, well, who thinks it's sexy? That's the question. And as a venture studio, we basically have two customers. We have founders. We're basically, we're going out and co-founding companies. Our team of 10 to 15 at Superlayer basically is your co-founding team. So we go find an amazing domain expert in a certain space. We work together to launch this business. We want that co-founder to think those rails are sexy as hell because you fundamentally need that to build a successful tokenized business. But what I think we did as a whole as an industry is then we then put that same sexy rail belief on the consumer. And let's be real, the consumer doesn't give a shit about sexy rails. In your skyscraper analysis, they want to be in the penthouse. For me, it's, yeah, the consumer wants to ride the train. They're not going out and expecting the rails afterwards and high-fiving each other. Look how smooth they are. It's all about the train itself. And so I think that's probably the tension that we have is the rails have to be right. They have to be sexy to us. And actually the best test of are they sexy to us is if the user, especially like the new to Web3 user, doesn't even notice them. Yeah. And that's, I guess, to point to the Top Shot success story, that's one of the things they did really well is people didn't even know they were using it. I guess for the ideation, are you guys coming up with this new business idea yourself and then go searching the founder or founder inbound? And then once that idea happens, is there ever a discussion of, does this need tokenization or not? We love this idea. This is not tokenization. Walk me through that process. Yeah, I would say it can happen both ways, whether a founder approaches us or we approach founders. In the vast majority of the time, we're approaching founders. And so that thing gets to your second point is how do these ideas come about is we as a team need to have green conviction that it should be decentralized. And so I'd say that's pretty early on in our concept validation. And I'd say it's two parts. For this to be interesting to us, one, we have to believe it's going to be a best done tokenized business. Second, we are a venture studio. And the way we're able to create more success for our companies is to effectively basically draft off of each other. So there's a venture studio, Atomic, which built in the consumer space, which is fantastic. And one of the projects they launch is Hymns, the product for men. And so they built that incredibly successfully as a D2C brand. Well, what was the next business they launched? Hers. Wow, that makes a ton of sense. And those porting over the lessons you learn from one, acquiring that customer, how to nurture that customer through the funnel, that is part of our value prop to founders. So let's say we build a tokenized social company with an advertising model. If there's another business that we then go launch that has an ad-supported model as well, we're really taking those lessons on, well, how do you best build a token economic model that supports an ad model 
to drive revenue. We are ideally drafting up. So our portfolio shouldn't be a spray and pray approach. It should both be purely, yes, this is best done tokenized. And these businesses make sense together because what you're learning from project A can be, you're porting over 60% of those lessons to project B because that's better for both those founders. So why tokenize at all? The big question of when I meet companies, they pitch me on different things. I would always ask, okay, why are you doing this this way? Why is this not just a database? Why is a token necessary for your business to be successful? Yeah, it's a great question. I think to me, tokenizing is most attractive, most aligned when you're trying to align incentives between the user of a product and the business. So if you take a traditional equity business, it needs to generate enough revenue to generate a profit. And that goes back to shareholders. Those shareholders are typically not the core users of the project. Even take Facebook with 2 billion users. I'm guessing not all 2 billion users are shareholders of Facebook. And so the opportunity with a tokenized business is to have the users of the product that are generating value on the platform. Again, I'm speaking from the consumer mindset is to have them take home more of that benefit. So again, Twitter right now, there's an ad on every fifth tweet. The user sees no benefit from that. So we have a business called Hotline that is basically Web3 OnlyFans. And in Web3 OnlyFans takes a 20% commission. That was basically a tax on creators that is taken by the platform to reward shareholders that are probably not creators or users on the platform. For Hotline, it's 10%. But ideally, that goes down to 2% because the difference, we don't have these equity-based shareholders that are not users. Everyone who is on the platform, the founders, investors, are incentivized by the token. So ultimately, we want high demand for that token to demonstrate an extreme utilization of that token. And so the fee we charge on that goes down and down, and that's rewarded by ultimately the token price going up. And that's just that incentive alignment that exists for tokenized projects just is, to me, it's a perfect fit for a lot of the revenue forward consumer models. Yeah, man, I'm excited to jump into this, but I was having a conversation this morning about like craftsmanship on Twitter. And it made me think that in a capitalistic game, you're most likely just going to go to the lowest cost. When shareholders have value, it's their bottom line is profit margin. And so the idea is that it's a reallocation of capital, that those shareholders are in some ways disinterested parties. They don't have to care at all or even use the product to own it. But then they decide, well, you might not be smoking cigarettes, but you might have a big stake in Philip Morris, then decide when to reallocate to Costco. This idea that the users benefit clearly for things like businesses that don't just have a razor thin margin where it's just a race to the bottom and there's really some like high value add. There's something there. I can see where that goes flawed, where when there's incentives, you don't want. Can you think of an example where that's great that you're returning value, but it's the wrong group of people to help have governance decisions or deciding what to do as a company? How do you split that decision-making process? I think probably the most of the consumer projects we're launching have a DAO at some point that has some control over the usage of the token. And I think, again, going back to the early days of DAOs, some of the biggest flaws were, well, what does the DAO control and when does it get, basically, when do you decentralize? And I think uh, group-based product management is probably an easy, obvious, terrible flaw. Nobody wants that. And so I think decentralizing too early is certainly a flaw. But I think things like figuring out the best usage of the token is something that can be best done by the most active users that are, again, in that DAO that are own some portion of the, of the token. 
So I think from a governance standpoint, it makes sense to figure out where is there the highest alignment? Because ultimately, none of these consumer products works without users. Trying to focus governance on, okay, for example, if there's token rewards, how do they get allocated back? Is it narrow? Is it broad? Getting the DAO as part of that, that makes more sense. Anything around feature creation, basically anything with a lot of creativity is probably not best done in via group. That makes sense. All right. So it's hard not to go back to the first business because I've had friends, specifically one friend who has pitched me this idea numerous times. And I've had other people talk about this. Only fans for Web3, which I did not know was one of the companies. This is an idea that I hadn't thought about, but what got you guys into this idea and how are you trying to differentiate it? This was one where I'd say it wasn't us or the founder. It was the industry itself that pulled out. I think it was in mid-2021, basically, creators were deplatformed on OnlyFans. I think OnlyFans basically said, because of MasterCard processing rules, we can no longer accept credit card payments. We're not going to do basically adult creator stuff. And that was a shout out to the crypto world of, holy shit, this is a big idea. Because when you think about, well, what can you do with crypto rails? It's all of the concerns about censorship are certainly a big part of it. Also, to the question of when does it make sense to tokenize? Well, there's a lot of times swiping a credit card is much more advantageous. But when you want to create an experience that's not governed by arbitrary rules by Visa and MasterCard, tokenizing makes a ton of sense. And so I think when you think about hotline versus OnlyFans, I think from a creator standpoint, there's certainly a higher take rate. They're also less limited in which kind of geographies they can work with. And also, fundamentally, they become owners in the platform rather than renters, in a sense. And it's not yet tokenized, but we're moving towards that. So if a user basically brings a $10 tip, let's say they swipe their card and they give a $10 tip, we would take 10% of that and the creator would take the remaining 90%. And a lot of that would be in the hotline token. That's up to the platform, how much in token versus, let's say, USDC. The creators also become advocates on your platform and they can participate in the value that they are creating in the same way that I'm trying to think of like, what was it? Kim Kardashian or the early proponents of Instagram. Yeah, it sure would have been nice to if they were the ones really driving the value and adoption to be part of this. And then lastly, there's censorship. We can therefore provide a home for content that might have been banned arbitrarily by other networks for other reasons. Take OnlyFans, they don't do studio content, they only do individuals. So there's a lot of different ways that we can differentiate from OnlyFans. And actually, one that's really important is OnlyFans is the elephant in the room right now. And so the fact that they can arbitrarily deplatform creators. Even though you might be earning a hell of a living on it, there is existential risk for a lot of these creators. It's typically their primary source of income. So having an alternative stream and creating an alternative fan base somewhere else is actually really healthy for a lot of these creators. And so is the economic model that the users are paying in fiat or is it that they're paying in the token? It's a good question. If you would ask me in 2021, before we even got started, we'd say, of course, yeah, they're paying in token. And now it's the typical user is not someone who's crypto familiar. We want them to have the feeling of they're swiping their credit card. Behind that, actually, USDC. And that's the token used on the platform. It's a very familiar experience. Swipe the card, go immediately to payment. So from a user standpoint, we don't want them to think about what they're paying in. In the background, obviously, that's something we care a lot about. But from a user standpoint, we want it to feel like they're just swiping their card. And that you're taking from the top shot model where you're swiping your credit card, but then you have basically an in-game currency you can then use. That's right. And that's very much the gaming model, like Robux or anything like that. You bring money on the platform and then you might earn it in a different format. I think that's ideally a very familiar experience to a lot of these users. 
And then just to push on the first place we started, why tokenize? If you now have the dollars, why not just pay out dollars? Why pay in tokens? Yeah, I think the fundamental difference between an equity model and token model is incentive alignment. So OnlyFans is the example of, well, what if you didn't tokenize it? What would it look like? So we just think there's enough compelling advantages from what content can be on there, how it enables creators, and then how the participants are better aligned in the value creation, which is more users come on and the more they interact with the token. One thing I alluded to earlier, what are we actually doing with this token is when we launch a token at Superlayer, if you think back to the Axie step in days, there was always a ton of inflation. So do any activity, whether it creates value or not, economic value or not, and get rewarded with a token. That's where the inflation came from. It was very hard to argue that every 10 steps was worth some amount of dollar value, even though the token was being given out. So the way we do it, we're pioneering this model is that for every dollar that gets brought onto the platform, that then goes to buy the platform token. And then, then give from that platform token back to whoever earned it. So let's say the creator. That is the only way you can access these tokens other than buying it on the open market. So there is no built-in inflation. It is actually a deflationary, which is either the platform, if we hold on to 10%, if we hold on to any of that, therefore there's default buy pressure on the token. And typically if the creator, they're going to sell a lot of it to make ends meet as, as they should, but they're probably not going to sell all of it. And so let's say of every dollar that comes in, if 20 cents of that is held in the token, again, that creates in a sense, 20% of buy pressure on that token. All right. Now I have to try to follow this economically here, but if I put a dollar in and now I have a cross currency where I've got this hotline token and I've got a dollar, when people pay creators on this platform, what currency are they thinking? Are they thinking like $100 gets me this? Or are they thinking like 100 hotline? Just because what I'm thinking is, obviously, let's just say the currency goes up in price. Now it's you only need a little bit to pay. And if the price plummets, then you have a lot. I'm not totally following how you've got around the inflation economics, but I might be missing something. So I think there's two things, which is there's fluctuation, which we can get into like how to mitigate that. And then there's inflation. And on the inflation side, it's the platforms basically had a huge supply of tokens that they were emitting without actually getting dollar for dollar value from that. So it's again, steps is probably the easiest example of great, a thousand steps, here's 10 tokens. Well, did you create economic value? And if not, you're basically just inflating the amount of tokens that are out there. And so for us, making sure that there is no source of inflation, it becomes net deflationary. But on the fluctuation side, I think that's certainly problematic. The way we get around that is actually by pricing things in dollar equivalents. And so if you went on hotline and you said, cool, I want to give a $10 tip or a $5 subscription or whatever it might be, you're going to see that price in dollars. And so when you go to check out, you swipe your card, whatever the price of hotline is at that point, that's what you're buying at that point. Obviously, if you hold on to hotline over a period of time, it can rise or fall. But there's the ability to, again, what do we care about? We care about the user experience. We want them to know it's a $5. If I'm putting in five bucks, that I'm actually getting $5 of value. Yeah. And then on the creator side, I know there's the idea of deplatforming and censorship and people's rights to earn, but it also seems like an industry that's got to have a lot of legal protections around what is obscenity or what is illegal types of content. I guess thinking about the risk there, like that to me shows why you would want a centralized actor. This is content that we just deem illegal, child pornography or something. And it seems to me that in a decentralized model, that could become a very dangerous thing. I know I'm going to an extreme and I'm sure people have thrown this one at you before, but I'm curious how that gets handled. 
So there's certainly a risk that a platform could pursue that of allowing content that's basically illegal, CSAM, like child pornography and all that. Thankfully, now there's a ton of tools, a lot of them offered by free. I think Microsoft offers one because this is a known problem. Most actors don't want this to exist. So something that any platform can just enable filters on content to make sure that that doesn't exist. There's also ways, there's signatures that you get from the creators and anyone that are in their your scenes, et cetera, that basically are signing off on that. So there's still, that is something that if you're going to work with any external partners, they're going to want to make sure that you are buttoned up on, especially the issue of CSAM, child pornography, et cetera. So even you think about payment rails, we work with a certain payment provider. We certainly talk about and show the ways that we are mitigating that. So it's, we're not on an island completely independent to ourselves that we can enable all of that. Maybe that's something that's possible in the future for now. You're still part of an ecosystem. In addition, I think when we think about appealing to the masses, the masses that want to be ultimately know that they're on a platform where that's not happening. Yeah. So it's decentralization, but to a point. And eventually there are things that do have to have central guardrails of it's not just a DAO's decision. This works, this doesn't work. On the creator side, I'm curious, as you've interacted, obviously when that happened in 21, everyone, you said everybody started working on this. What is the market? Is there a lot of competitors in the space? What are the creators thinking? I'm always curious because I think that this did excite people, this early idea of connecting creators with fans. And obviously OnlyFans is a great example of that. I'm curious on the creator side, have they become jaded? Is it like, oh yeah, I thought that was going to work. It hasn't. Nobody's opened this funnel up for us. Taking a step back on OnlyFans, part of the reason we think this business is compelling is that content, any type of content is mostly free on the internet. OnlyFans actually, especially in COVID, became basically a cure for loneliness. The key feature of Hotline and OnlyFans is chat. There's actually a real one-to-one connection. Again, content, all types of content are basically free everywhere. That's commoditized. Human connection is not. So that was a big innovation that OnlyFans brought to the space. That is, again, our fundamental premise as well. This is more of a place to solve loneliness and connection than it is certain types of content. So I think when we talk about adult creators and what they're looking for, some of them have been somewhat jaded from what's gone down and since 2021. There were some focused on payment rails in crypto, and then there was a lot focused on NFT projects. And that was really the crypto du jour. And the NFTs were really a solution for a problem that didn't exist, especially for creators. If you think about all the successful NFT communities, that's not the same behavior that creators are seeking. And payment rails is really, again, that was a technical solution that most weren't seeking. So I think creators have seen other creators in the industry adopt certain projects or be part of it. And we're somewhat jaded by that. And what they're looking for are projects with staying power, with legitimate people and credibility behind it. So I think Hotline's been around for, I think, 14 months now. We're fully doxxed, the team, the founding team and the team behind it and super layer of support. And so they're looking for trust and credibility. I'd say everyone has their own story of how they had experiences where they were booted off of platforms or kicked off of Instagram or whatever it might be. And so they are actively seeking alternatives. They just want to have certain trust points that these alternatives are going to be around for a while. Yeah, that's interesting. So over the 14 months, where have you seen traction? I guess you're obviously running the business today without a token. So in this theme of, well, now why do we need it? How do you see the business changing whenever the token comes into being? And why is the business working today without a token? Well, the business is tokenized today. It's just we're using USDC as the platform token. Okay. That's mostly a placeholder until we develop significant enough traction to make this revenue-based model really appealing, which is we want to prove that there's enough demand 
on the platform so that there's consistent revenue flows and the belief that the platform would then take the platform fee and then use that to purchase more token. So that's also how you create more demand for the token. And ideally, we want to show that on-chain over time. So this is something that we are doing consistently and something we're committed to. So it is tokenized today. It's just, it's, again, the most seamless user experience right now is USDC. So let's talk about Trophy. That's another one of the businesses you're excited about. I'm curious to get your take of how you bounce around these things too, but tell me more about Trophy. Yeah, so Trophy is basically Rakuten or Honey for your mobile gaming experience. So what I mean by that is if you're a Candy Crush player, for Candy Crush acquiring a new user, they might be willing to pay $5 for that. So similar to Rakuten, if you're on Nike.com, they capture the referral fee and they give some back to the user. So that's what we do as well. So you go into the app and then you play certain games. The user then captures a significant portion of that referral fee. And so we do that in the native token for a trophy. And again, this project is new. It's been under development for roughly a year, but it's launching a token soon. It's actually live in India right now and soon to expand more globally. And now that we've gone through the up and down here, so you've alluded to Axie a couple of times and Stepin, I think that people were excited by the prospect of doing it. They wanted to get involved. There's obviously a lot of money at stake, but then the models behind it, they sound okay. You're going to give people money in a different way. It really gets down to the tokenomics. So when you're thinking about creating that structure, how do you approach building the right tokenomic structure that's not just going to do well and then subsequently crash? I think we think about how do you build a sustainable token economic structure? That was what was definitely lacking. And part of the reason it was lacking was one, speculation was rampant and gone wild. And candidly, that's not something that's easy to solve. Speculators want to speculate and you have a live token that can happen. I think the core issue was that it was very hard to provide any sort of a reasonable sense of valuation on any of these companies, because if you wanted to compare one to another, maybe it was based off of users, but there wasn't a ton of economic value being generated. And so it goes back to what is the key to building a tokenized business? We still think it's what is the key to building a non-tokenized business, driving significant revenue streams. And so we believe with these businesses, if we can drive significant revenue streams, you're using that to then acquire the token. You don't have any default inflation because you're not giving that away. That is the key to building a much more sustainable token model. Even though the sources of revenue across our hotline is typically tips and subscriptions, trophy is referral uh, or affiliate model. And we have another game coming out soon that is ad supported. All of them are ultimately driving revenue streams that we can give a significant portion back to the user. That feels like an easier thing to put a value on and compare to other businesses than just how rampant speculation might be. And so while you can't control speculation, I guess my second question that would be like, well, then what's the purpose of the token? Because if you're trying to abstract the token from the front user, so they're swiping their card, they have dollars, you're pricing in dollars. The token itself is just a conversion mechanism where people are paid in it. But then what's the reason to use the token beyond speculating that you think more people might want it in the future if it has no use itself? Well, there's definitely utility on the platform. So if you take Hotline as an example, for the 10% that Hotline, the platform takes, you can treat that like dollars and use it for operating capital, or you can treat it like user acquisitions. Early on, that's something we think we probably give back to the users themselves. And so there are things like token gating, 
hotline, if you earned a certain amount of hotline, there's things you have access to, like let's say Amazon Prime. You can imagine a hotline Prime sort of access to certain channels, to certain creators. That's a benefit for holding onto that. So we definitely think you build out utility over time. I would say the users upfront, we want their onboarding to feel as seamless as possible. And so that's why it should feel more like a typical credit card swipe. For creators, they're savvier and this is their business. And so they get it more. And so there's less need to be done from a utility creation standpoint for them to get it. Is there a world where for the hotline one where there's a third party, the creator, they could charge in dollars or charge in the token? Yeah, definitely. And I think you could do things like whether it's discounted or it removes the platform fee, if it's paid in hotline to benefits where I think every consumer Web3 business should be right now is optimizing for the non-native Web3 user, right? So really optimizing for that first few transactions rather than the 200th. But yeah, I do see that option of ideally over time, there is no, people aren't thinking as much about swiping the credit card and abstracting away what that is, that the hotline token is front and center and something that people want to participate in. It's just, I think there is some jadedness in this industry as a result of the over-pushing of tokens onto people without real utility. So even if we had the perfect utility solution that we feel is 100% obvious, I still think we need to go out and prove it because that's not the default assumption of people coming in. I think if I separate it, I'm fascinated by the business idea. It seems obviously like there's a demand from the market for it. It seems hard enough to build a startup as is that I remember when I interviewed Axie, my biggest question was the guy Gio who I interviewed with, he had wrote his college thesis on monetary policy and the foundation of systems. And from finance, I'm like, this is really hard. Balancing an economic token or currency is really hard because to your point, you can't prevent market forces from pushing it up, from pushing it down. And so the volatility, which might be fun for traders, might not be fun for the people having to use it or the people managing a business. So I'm back to that question of what could you do about it? How do you think about the pro and the con of not having control about that volatility? I would say that, you know, I don't want to be overly comparing to this, but it's not a, the volatility is not a new component. For example, if Amazon stock tripled, I don't know that that affects what I do on Amazon as a whole. Obviously, the token, the more utility we drive out of the token, the more core it is to the experience. You can have an experience where, let's say, as the creator, you receive the equivalent of $1,000 in, in tips in a week or in a month. And then all of a sudden, that could be worth $5,000. It could be worth $200. So I think that is just a known. And so part of that is probably education. Is you want to, especially the creators are core to making this an amazing user experience. And so you really want to educate the creator on, okay, if you really do want to treat this as liquidity and dollars, you should then go out and make those swaps immediately. And then also we can provide tools for that to make that seamless. For example, you could have something where you automatically, okay, great. Let's put 80% of this in USDC. Ideally, you're not offloading the risk, but you're supporting that from a creator standpoint. It's fascinating. From the beginning, I've always wondered about with the currency part of there's clearly a good ability to create incentives and mechanics. And I love playing with that part of it. The part I wonder about is where the volatility belongs. In my simple example, we make cereal and we sell our boxes of cereal for four bucks a box of cereal. And the consumer becomes conditioned to cereal costs four bucks. And maybe next year it costs $4.10 or $4.20. The price of wheat is moving around all the time. And I, the cereal manufacturer, sometimes I make a lot of money and they're hedging the markets. 
all that volatility, to your point, is always happening. It's everywhere. And you, the consumer, don't realize it. The clothes you're wearing and the cars you're in, there's a supply chain and there's goods and there's contracts with very volatile things that are whipping around in the markets every day. And someone is bearing the benefit and the downside of that movement. And here, it's an interesting trade-off where I was going on the pros and cons is that why I think this was such an interesting idea is that while it might seem riskier to go down this path, their business model is in jeopardy under a current regime. So it might be the one that's actually worth trying, I guess, is what I was getting to. Yeah, no, I think that's a good analogy for it. Again, I think the ways to mitigate that are to, for example, play a hypothetical out there. It's widely adopted and maybe used beyond this platform. You could still, again, you're going to the grocery store and you can do a $4 equivalent. So whatever the price of Hotline is that day, it's still, I know I'm buying this for the equivalent of $4. Um, so I think that's ways that you can, by still associating it with a dollar value, at the very least, that transaction in the moment, which you can still make it feel like normal. It's the longer term impact where, to use a serial analogy, it's like you have all this inventory and wow, I didn't know it was worth 10 times as much or 10 times as little. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting experiment to watch. Are the companies that you founded and built, do any of them already fully baked with their token in the market using this version of what you guys have as non-inflation tokens yet? No, I mean, we basically started ideating around this model at the at the end of 22. And so in the middle of some of crypto markets blowing up and FTX and all that drama, it became, I think it was always clear that it needed to be a better model. The blow up, if anything, was the, all right, everyone back to the whiteboard together. And so that's really our solution that we're pioneering as part of that. So I think, again, Trophy is the live product today in India. We'll be launching a game soon. Hotline is pre-native token that, again, using USDC. But those are the first three out there. We've got another two planes on the runway that we'll, again, wait to announce until they get to a farther enough spot. But we're both confident and excited in this model because we think the lack of trust in the industry as a whole I believe it's a ton to do with that, with the wild fluctuations in prices. It is hard to build a consumer user trust when things are going all over the place. So we started in looking back at 21 and all the things you got wrong. Now having about two and a half years of trying to build stuff and use the Web3 model and being pretty dedicated to that style of business model and structure, looking back at 21, what are the things that you were most proud of that you got right or the things that you still hold to be true today that you also believed back then? It's a good question. We wear multiple hats in the venture studio. And so I think from a super layer venture studio standpoint, my prior life was spent 10 years at Samsung building out the equivalent of accelerators, venture capital, multiple geographies for them. And what I always thought a ton about was what was our core value prop and could we consistently deliver on it? And with Samsung next to us, you're receiving Samsung dollars and Samsung resources. And was that worth was that more differentiated and better than any other VC or other providers? And when we launched Superlayer, the belief was that our offering, which came from a team that had 20 years of gaming experience, five years of building multiple $6 billion plus FDV crypto projects, that that experience on your founding team was extreme differentiator. And so even through the highs and lows of this market, I think when we meet the right founder, and the right founder for us is typically a domain expert in wherever we're trying to build. So whether it's hotline or a game or a trophy, they've been building probably the web two equivalents or dreaming of building that in an adjacency. And so they look at us and they appreciate the fact that this isn't some revolutionary new way to build, but I have to go build the right product and I have to build the right crypto stack underneath. And you guys are the best partners for that. So I do think 
that's where we've been able to recruit in some amazing founders because that value prop is one that's super compelling and two that we've been able to consistently deliver on. I was wondering if there are a thesis that you had that held true, whether it was the consumer or burying the rail, what part of that 21 thesis, not just bringing people on and partnering with the right people, but what part about Web3 has stayed true for you throughout this entire spot? I mean, I'd say the enthusiasm around Web3 is still fundamentally built around incentive alignment. Even with the rise and fall, That's it feels like it is a much tighter connection with your users. Even with some of the early products that didn't have success, again, that feels right. And that you can build a much more, people talk about Web3 is synonymous with community. And you can build a very passionate community that is part of what you are building because they have ownership in what you're building. So I don't think that was unique to us. I think that's gone from almost like Chris Dixon days of like, you can get a much more passionate community around your product because ownership is a component of that. What other teams or projects that you look at in this space now? So you can reflect back on Axie and Stepin and say, look, they found parts of it that were right. They did some stuff that was wrong or top shot. What is it today outside of Superlayer that you're seeing and that you have excitement about? Certainly one example, when I got into the NFT space, I pre-kids had a hobby that people call golf. I haven't played it that much since kids, but so when LinksDAO launched, it was right after Constitution DAO. So all of a sudden it was in the zeitgeist. And the idea of we want to buy a golf course. And Krauss House is another example of that. We want to buy a basketball team. But what I love about those examples is that they made it incredibly tangible for users. And that even though someone passionate about golf, do I want to buy be a part of a group buying a golf course? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And to LinkStyle's credit, they just went and bought their first course, Spade Bay, I think in Ireland or Scotland. They actually delivered on the promise. In so many of these communities, either the promise was too ambitious or it was too kind of hype-driven, but that is a team and group that has executed on delivering on their core promise. I think the fact that there was such a strong tie-in with, frankly, reality, it wasn't some just digital concept on its own, but it's something that people can really get their arms around and, frankly, play with in real life. That's the example of the Web3 example that draws my, you know, I can talk to my 94-year-old stepdad about He's like, oh, okay, I'm now curious about this. I talk to my friends who aren't in crypto at all. And they're like, oh, that actually links to actually, maybe I should buy one because there actually is a ton of value that's yielding. So I think that was a great example of one that just tied in, that executed well, but also had a value prop that was clearly understandable and tied into reality. Yeah, I agree. I think they stood out, they executed. I think people at that time, again, that was one that maybe got at first, it's not crypto, it's for normal people, but people got it. And I think that they've been able to execute on and deliver something that's really interesting that has people, whether you're involved or not, at least watching, is this a real thing that can be done and repeated? Gary, this has been a lot of fun. We end the podcast with the same question. What are you most excited about building over the next six months? And what are you most excited about building over the next six years? Before I answer that, I got to say, it's exciting for me. It's great to be on this podcast. I was a fan of it for a while. And I have to admit, it's the first time I've ever heard your voice. In 1x when I <laughs> when I listen to any podcast, it's always in 2x. So when this comes out, it'll be something that's more, oh, okay, that's the Eric I've gotten to know. So <laughs> but in terms of six months, I'd say for us, we are at super layer, not with any one project across all of them. We're focused on really the proof of sustainability of that revenue-based token model. That is, we believe, the core unlock that's gonna make in the same way that LinksDAO made really did bring web three to the masses. We think that this will help. Proven sustainable token model will help make Web3 far more appetizing for people to experiment with. And then 
over six years from now, actually, I think success would be defined as there is no discussion of tokenization or crypto. Nobody talks about, oh, it's the revenue-based model or whatever it was. It's crypto is a business model and like subscriptions. Now, when we talk about Netflix or Amazon Prime, nobody's like, oh, it's a subscription. It's like that enabled a unique business to be built on top. It was one of many enablers, but nobody talks about it anymore. But it has become a way that it's opened up businesses that didn't previously exist. And so I think that would certainly be a sign for success. And taking it probably one step farther would be, right now, I do feel like we're working on businesses that have a clear Web2 reference. So you take Hotline compared to OnlyFans, Trophy, there are other equivalents in that Rackets and Honey space for gaming, standard games. We are looking at proving this model off of businesses that already existed. I'm, I'm hoping it's six years from now, we're building those businesses that couldn't exist before this business model, not just that prior iteration done better, there was no prior iteration because it just wasn't possible. Yeah, I look forward to that day too. People tell me I talk fast, but I can't even imagine what I sound like at 2X. So I'm gonna have to go do that. But Gary, thank you for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 